Lord, uh, we recognize uh, this morning that uh, this is a topic, and all of these are really, uh, it's why you commanded it, because uh, it's not easy. But this one is, is difficult for us. And so we ask for your help this morning in understanding what forgiveness is, understanding um, uh, your requirements on this, and, uh, and maybe even remembering, as we've just done in this song, remembering the grace that has been poured out on each of us so, so freely to us. Uh, so help us with that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I think that most of us probably recognize that that we are desperately in need of God's forgiveness. Uh, And yet we, most of us, uh, maybe all of us, struggle to forgive others. Uh, am Am I alone in this or is this... Okay, there's one other brother that struggles with this, so... God will bless his honesty. So. Uh, it's, it's clear in this passage that's, that's on the screen that we are expected to forgive just as we have been forgiven. Uh, according to Jesus in another passage that we're going to look at uh, this morning, our obedience to this command reveals whether we have received God's forgiveness or not. I'll say that again. Our obedience to this command reveals whether or not we have received God's forgiveness ourselves. So it's pretty important. Uh, Before I I get into the passage, um, I want to say this, kind of as a caveat here. Uh, Some of you have been deeply, uh, deeply wounded uh, by another person. Some of you have experienced horrific abuse. And I want to be clear uh, that when we're talking uh, about forgiveness, we are not talking about putting yourself back into a a situation uh, where you are unsafe. Okay? Uh, If anyone anyone ever suggests to you that, well, if if you don't go back into that, you haven't really forgiven. That is not true. That's not biblical. Um, that, that really is a whole other issue that's raised when we talk about reconciliation. And, and that's something that comes after forgiveness, if it comes at all. There are times that it's not appropriate or safe to reconcile in, in that way. So, so we've got to be really careful not to confuse those uh, two things, forgiveness and reconciliation. Um, There are a couple of books uh, that I have found uh, very helpful, three of them, uh, in thinking about forgiveness. Uh, And I want to recommend them to you if forgiveness is something that you're uh, struggling with and and you want to do some deeper thinking on it. Evil and the Justice of God uh, by N.T. Wright is uh, one of those. Uh, The Reason for God by Tim Keller uh, is another and the third, uh, the title's kind of hard to see here, uh, is called Free of Charge, Giving and Forgiving in a Culture Stripped of Grace. And that's written by Miroslav Volf, V-O-L-F. 
Um, Keller and Wright uh, both have sections in their books uh, that deal with forgiveness. And Wolf's book, uh, the whole book, is, is on this topic. Uh, it's, it's very, very good. It's deep, but it's very, very good. Uh, let's talk a little bit about what forgiveness is. Um, sort of working toward a definition of what it is. Because uh, it seems to me that people have some really, really goofy ideas sometimes about uh, what forgiveness is. Um, even among Christians, we're, we're pretty good at uh, reading books, hearing sermons, um, understanding even how God has forgiven us, but we get, we get all sideways on it when it comes to forgiving others. And I'm going to suggest a definition of forgiveness here in just a moment, uh, but I want to give you a, a real-life uh, personal illustration uh, of it that I, that I think will, will help bring some understanding. Uh, when I was in seminary, I, I had to write a paper on a subject that was very specific to an area of study that most of the other students um, weren't concerned with. And the seminary library didn't have any books on, on this topic that I needed to, to do my research. Uh, and so one of my professors loaned me about a dozen books from his personal library uh, on, this, on this topic. And I put the books uh, in a box, and I put the box in the back of my car, and um, really carelessly, um, I didn't take the box out of the car when I got home. Um, I forgot to take the box out of the car the next day and I think maybe the day after that. So they were in there for a few days. But I wasn't very concerned really because I, I really didn't think anyone would want to steal these, these books on the uh, theology and expressions of, of worship throughout the history of the church. Who's going to want that, Right. But as it turned out, someone was very interested in stealing my 1967 Volvo 122S with dual carbs, really expensive wheels, and a killer stereo. And of course, this happened to Becky when she was shopping with two of our babies, uh, which is another story for another time. Uh, But when the police found the car... The wheels were gone, Uh, the car seats for the kids were gone, the killer stereo was gone, Um, all of our cassette tapes, kids, those are, talk to your parents about what those are. Uh, They came right after another really cool invention called 8-track. All those things were gone, and the box of books was gone. Uh, Many of those books were old, out of print. Uh, They were really irreplaceable. Um, And so with with fear and trepidation, I went to my professor and I told him the whole story about my 1967 Volvo 122S with the dual carbs and the really expensive wheels and the killer stereo. Told him about the car seats and the cassette tapes. And then I told him about the books. Uh, 
he was really not happy with me. Um, and I knew he wouldn't be. Uh, but after he had ruled out murder and expulsion, um, my professor basically had two options. Uh, two options before him. Option A was that he could demand that I pay for the stolen books, which would have been really difficult for us given our financial status at the time and the fact that I don't know where you would get these books that were out of print. That's option A. He could demand that I repay him. Or option B is that he could refuse to make me pay for the damages and in doing so, absorb the the loss on himself, which was the option he chose. Uh, He knew that I meant him no harm, Uh, What I did was stupid, but it wasn't malicious. Um, But even so, he could have tried to teach me a lesson, right? So it would never happen again. He He could try to make me pay it back. But instead, he took on himself the cost of that loss. And, and that really is the simplest definition of forgiveness that I know of. Uh, choosing to take on yourself the cost of a wrong that was done to you. Choosing to take on yourself the cost of a wrong that was done to you. I don't know if you've thought of forgiveness in that way before, and I'm going to encourage you to keep thinking uh, in light of that definition as we go. Uh, Now, in the case of of this story of stolen books, um, it was mainly a financial uh, loss to my professor. Maybe there was some sentimental loss uh, uh, of the books that he he couldn't get back. Uh, But as Tim Keller notes in his book, most of the wrongs that are done to us cannot be assessed in purely economic terms. There are times that someone has harmed you physically or emotionally or robbed you of some happiness, reputation, opportunity, or certain aspects of your freedom. And no price tag can be put on those things. And yet, we still have a sense of of violated justice that that doesn't just go away when someone says, look, I'm really sorry. Um, We we have this indelible sense that the perpetrator has incurred a debt that must be dealt with. Something in us wants uh, wrongs to be made right. So I ask you, how are these bigger wrongs something that's not just some lost books or stolen books. How are these bigger wrongs to be made right? The same way. Uh, Just like the fairly trivial example of the stolen books with with these more serious wrongs, uh, there are still essentially only two options that we have. And the first option, option A, is to make the other person suffer for what they have done. 
right? And this is the option that we're probably most inclined to. Uh, But there's a big problem with this approach. Again, Tim Keller helps to explain. He says, evil has been done to you, yes, but when you try to get payment through revenge, the evil does not disappear. Instead, it spreads, and it spreads most tragically of all into you and your own character. You understand? Have you ever experienced that? I know I have. Even if you haven't gone as far as trying to get revenge, just, just holding on to that bitterness really becomes a poison pill. And in choosing to make the other person suffer, you end up poisoning yourself, even killing yourself. It's a really bad option. And so the only Uh, Good option available to us is the option that God models for us and requires of us, forgiveness. And this is the key to having a right understanding of forgiveness. We learn what forgiveness is by how God has forgiven us. It's much like how we learn what love is. We love because... We forgive because he forgave us. And and for those of us familiar with the story of the cross, we know that instead of making us pay for our sin, Jesus paid for it. Someone had to pay. And Jesus said, I'll do it. Right? Again, forgiveness means choosing to take on yourself the cost of a wrong that was done Now back to the stolen books example. If my professor doesn't make me pay, it means he is going to pay. He will either pay to replace the books, some of which were irreplaceable, um, or he was going to pay in the form of no longer having these books that he really valued. Do you see? He had to pay. Even Even if it wasn't a financial loss to him. It was a loss to him that he had to pay. Forgiveness is costly. It's a form of suffering. Because not only do you suffer the original loss, but now you give up the satisfaction of inflicting loss or pain on the person who wronged you. So again, in forgiveness, you're absorbing the debt, taking the cost of it completely on yourself instead of taking it out on the other person. Now, here's the thing. Even though forgiveness is costly and painful, there's something powerfully healing about forgiveness. Wright says, The fact is that when we forgive someone, we not only release them from the burden of our anger and its possible consequences, we release ourselves from the burden of whatever it was they had done to us and from the crippled emotional state in which we shall go on living if we don't forgive them and instead cling to our anger and bitterness. When we forgive, we bring healing. We bring healing to ourselves. Uh, Wright says that forgiveness is the only medicine that heals the offender and the offended. 
It's a beautiful thing. So that's what we're talking about this morning. That's what we mean when we say uh, forgiveness. Uh, it's taken me a little bit to, to get to our actual passage, but if we don't understand, if we come into this passage with our screwy ideas of what forgiveness is, we're not going to understand it, okay? Uh, so with that understanding of forgiveness, uh, let's turn to Matthew 18, where Peter asks Jesus a very important question. Matthew 18, we'll begin at verse 21. Then Peter came to Jesus and said, Lord, how many times could my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Now, the the prevailing thought from the rabbis of Jesus' day was that you only had to forgive a person three times if they repented of, of some sin against you. And that was largely based on some verses in uh, Amos chapter 1 and 2. It was kind of a three strikes, you're out uh, kind of a rule, right? But, but Peter's been hanging around Jesus for a while by, by this point, right? And, and he knows that Jesus actually raises the bar on a lot of these things that are spiritually important, right? So Peter doubles the number and then adds one for good measure, right? He's actually being pretty generous when he suggests forgiving a person up to seven times, according to what the rabbis taught in that day. Verse 22, Jesus said to him, I tell you, not as many as seven, but 70 times seven. Some of your translations might have 77 times. Some say 70 times seven. We're not sure uh, which, which it is. It's a lot more than seven, though, right? Uh, this, this cartoon might actually help capture it. I don't know if you can read it. Jesus says, I tell you not seven times, but 70 times seven. And somebody, not sure who that is in the back, says, great, not only do I have to forgive my brother, now I have to do math. <laughs> and the caption at the bottom, forgive because it's easier than math. Math is hard. I don't know if uh, Isaac would give me uh, an amen there on that one. But uh, anyway, most Bible scholars don't think Jesus was giving Peter a number uh, that that he needed to to mark off on uh, some balance book, right? It, It was more likely that Jesus was saying something like, Peter, forgive them as many times as it takes. Or like one commentator suggests, Jesus was saying, as long as you're keeping track, Peter, you haven't really forgiven them at all. That's that's sort of the sense of what Jesus is saying here. And then Jesus tells a story. You know, Jesus was always telling stories. They were so powerful. And we see that in this story. It's a story that happens in three scenes, uh, beginning at verse 23. Jesus said, For this reason, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who wanted to settle accounts with his slaves. When he began to settle accounts, one who owed 10,000 talents was brought before him. And since he had no way to pay it back, his master commanded that he, his wife, his children, and everything he had be sold. To pay the debt. 
this slave is most likely what we would call a debt slave. He had sold himself into slavery until he could work his debt off and be free. His, his other option would have been to be sent to debtor's prison, uh, which leaves no way for him to pay off uh, the debt. It, it leaves his family destitute. Um, and in this case, instead of working off his debt, somehow this guy has racked up more and more debt, a lot of debt. Uh, I want to see if we can kind of get this translated into modern dollar, uh, uh, dollar amounts. Uh, a talent isn't a, isn't a coin or a denomination of, of currency. It's a measurement of weight. It's about 75 pounds. So uh, 10,000 talents would be about 375 tons. Okay? Now, a talent uh, is uh, equivalent to about 6,000 denarii, uh, which would make the servant's debt about 60 million denarii. Now, a common laborer earned one denarius a day. So in today's dollars, based on minimum wage, this man owed somewhere in the neighborhood of $6 billion. Can you see the exaggeration that Jesus is making in this story? A slave who owes $6 billion. And everyone listening to Jesus' story would uh, understand this is an astronomical amount of debt. And everyone would have agreed that the sensible thing for the king to do is, is to try to recoup some of his losses by selling the slave and his family and, and possessions uh, to another slave owner. In fact, they, they probably would have seen that as the more gracious of the king's options because he could have thrown him into debtor's prison to be tortured. Okay? So uh, when the king says, um, let, let this guy and his family and all his be possessions be sold, uh, that, that would have been fairly gracious. Verse 26, at this, the slave fell face down before him and said, be patient with me and I will pay you everything. Then the master of that slave had compassion. He released him and forgave him the loan. This first scene in Jesus' story teaches about the king's lavish grace that we've already sung about this morning, right? His lavish grace in forgiving debts. The man had asked for patience. Instead, what he got was complete forgiveness. The, the debt was erased. And everyone listening would have known that the king in Jesus' story represented God. And, and everyone would have nodded and smiled because they know this is what God is like. He's lavish in his mercy and his grace. And maybe as Jesus told the story, it, it called to mind the most memorized passage in the Old Testament scriptures. Yahweh The Lord is the God of compassion and mercy. He's slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and mercy. He lavishes unfailing love on a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. That's what God's like. 
Of course, that's what this story's about. And, and maybe as we listen to the story, we, we, uh, we do the same, right? We hear the echoes of the, of the story of the cross, how our infinite debt and our inability to pay is, is met with God's forgiveness as Jesus takes our debt on himself. And maybe certain songs come to mind. Songs that say things like, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. How amazing is God's grace, right? Amen? Okay. Well, here comes scene two of Jesus' story. Verse 28, but that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him 100 denarii. And he grabbed him and he started choking him and he said, pay me what you owe. This man who had just experienced the amazing grace of the king, this man who had just been forgiven $6 billion debt, seeks out another slave, a fellow slave, who owes him How much? A million dollars? No. Hundred thousand dollars? No. One hundred denarii. About a hundred days wages for a day laborer. Based on those same minimum wage figures, it's about ten thousand dollars in today's money. Now ten thousand dollars isn't Nothing, but compared to six billion, it's pretty insignificant, isn't it? But this man who has been forgiven isn't thinking straight. And so he finds this man who owes him $10,000 and he grabs him and he chokes him and he demands that he pay up. What does the other slave do? Verse 29, at this, his fellow slave fell down and began begging him, be patient with me and I will pay you back. But he wasn't willing. On the contrary, he went and threw him into prison until he could pay what was owed. It's amazing to me how similar the actions and language of this second slave are to the language and actions of the first slave with the king. He fell down. He, he began begging him, have patience with me, he said. I will pay you. And you'd think, surely as, as that first slave sees those actions, those same actions that he did, and hears those same words that he said to the king, you'd think that his, that his brain would be jogged somehow. And he would say, oh, what was I thinking? Of course I forgive you. You're, you're free, just, just as I am free. That's not what he did. In fact, he pronounced a more severe punishment than the king had first pronounced on him. He threw him into debtor's prison, which means that he had no way of earning money, no way of ever repaying the debt. And so unless a family member uh, comes up with the money somehow, this was a life sentence. He'd be there forever. 
Douglas O'Donnell says that, that the scene, um, scene two starts and finishes so quickly that we may still be applauding the, the mercy and forgiveness of the, of the king in, in scene one, right? We're, we're still doing this. Scene two comes and goes so quickly, but then one by one, we realize what's just happened. We stop clapping. A few of us drop to our seats and eventually all of us just cover our mouths in disbelief. How? How could someone who had received that amount of mercy and grace turn around and treat a fellow slave this way? There's no evidence of gratitude, no change of heart. It's, it's disturbing, isn't it? And that's exactly how the other slaves witnessing uh, this scene react as we come into scene three of the story. Verse 31, they're, they're deeply distressed, it says, grieved over what they've just witnessed. Um, outraged is, a, is another word, uh, another way of translating this word. And so they tell, go to tell the king that this huge injustice has been done and, and they need a just king to come and take care of it. And so verse 32 tells us how the king responded. Then after he had summoned him, his master said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Shouldn't you also have had mercy on your fellow slave as I had mercy on you? And his master got angry and handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay everything that was owed. Uh, Which, of course, he couldn't. I don't know about you, but, but maybe uh, as, as listeners to this story, sort of removed from it a little bit, sort of innocent bystanders watching from the outside of the story, maybe we're okay with how this story ends, right? There, there's, there's resolution to the injustice that has been done, um, Some of us might even, even say, let him rot in jail for behaving that way, you know? But, but then Jesus puts an epilogue on the tail end of this story, verse 35. And this is what my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother or sister from your heart. And all of a sudden, we're squirming in our seats. Because Jesus isn't just telling a story anymore. Um, now he's talking to Peter, the disciples, you and me. And, and if we're following the allegory, there's not much question about what being tortured in prison is a reference to. Craig Blomberg says that Jesus is almost certainly referring to what we call hell. Eternal punishment. Conscious, agonizing separation from God and all that is good. 
And he says that because every other biblical reference to jailers or to torture in the context of God's judgment clearly points to hell. What do we do with that? Uh, Is Jesus saying if we don't forgive others, God is somehow going to change our salvation status and send us to hell? Well, that doesn't doesn't jive with other things we know uh, from the Bible. I I think uh, that Dutch theologian Hermann Ritterboss has some helpful insight here. He puts it this way. Whoever tries to separate man's forgiveness from God's forgiveness will no longer be able to count on God's mercy. The servant in the parable shows that he never understood God's forgiveness in the first place. God's mercy is a persistent power that pervades all of life. If it does not become manifest as such a power, then it was never received at all. Ritterboss is saying that if we don't forgive others, then there's no evidence in our lives that we have truly received God's forgiveness of us. And he says, God's mercy is persistent. It's not just a one and done thing, right? So if God's mercy and grace isn't something that we live in daily, displayed in forgiving others, then it's likely that we never had it at all. And friends, hell is exactly where people go who have not received God's forgiveness. They don't really want it. They don't want the package deal anyway. They want to be forgiven. But maybe not if it requires forgiving others. Wright says something similar when he compares forgiveness to the air we breathe. That's how central this is to our faith. He says, without God's forgiveness, we die. And then he says this, forgiveness is like the air in your lungs, but there's only room for you to inhale the next lungful after you've breathed out the previous one. If you insist on holding it in, refusing to give someone else the kiss of life that they may desperately need, you won't be able to take any more in yourself and you will suffocate very quickly. And sadly, I think a lot of people who claim the forgiveness of God are suffocating themselves. They love to receive forgiveness, but are stingy with it when it comes to giving it to others. And I believe this parable, this story from Jesus serves as a warning to any of us who would choose that path. I hope what you're seeing this morning is that forgiveness is hard. It's not something to be taken lightly. Our own forgiveness from from God is not something ever to be taken lightly. Um, And forgiving others isn't either. Uh, Forgiveness isn't pretending that the wrong didn't happen. Uh, When someone has wronged you and they they come and ask for forgiveness, for, for us to respond with, oh, that's okay, 
No. That's not a good response. I mean, maybe they're coming and, and, and saying, you know, uh, I, I hope that when I said this, I didn't come across this way. And maybe your response is, oh, goodness, no, I, I didn't hear it that way at all. That's okay. That can be a, it's okay. But when someone is truly wronged you to say, oh, that's okay, uh, it pretends that the wrong didn't happen. Miroslav Volf says that the wrong must be named. The wrong must be condemned. Forgiveness doesn't pretend that it's okay. Forgiveness is hard. It's a, it's a difficult, willful act of choosing to take the price of the wrong on yourself, just like God did with us. Now, there's not a person in this room, not one, who hasn't been wronged by another person. Um, some days I really wrestle with forgiveness. Some days, um, honestly, um, I tell God I'm not sure I can. But then I'm reminded of this. Um, there's not a person in this room that God hasn't forgiven. And somehow, I think what Jesus is teaching here is that his forgiveness of us somehow gives us the power to forgive others. It doesn't make it easy, but it makes it possible. It makes it possible. Let's pray. With our heads bowed, I'd like to take just a moment in silence uh, for each of us to consider if there is a person that we are withholding forgiveness from. And then I'm going to ask you to remember the infinite debt that God has forgiven you of. the six billion dollars that he has forgiven you of. And then ask this question, can you find it in your heart? Can I find it in my heart to forgive that person of that relatively small debt they owe me? It's hard. Uh, it's it's painful. Uh, but if you don't do it, it's going to kill you. It will. So Lord, we pray as you taught us to simply forgive our debts as we forgive our debtors. Amen.